Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. Okay, before I start, are there any questions about anything that we've gone over? Because we've kind of been cruising. And then I remember things from the past and pull them out too. So anyway, is there anything that... Okay, let me ask you this way. So if you were to pull... If you're going to pull out the Bible and start reading something in the Old Testament, do you have enough of a background that you would feel like you know what's going on? Better? Because <laughs> that's what, what I'm really trying to do is give you the backdrop more than anything. It's like, I don't want to go through and just read you the stories that are already there because you could do that on your own. So it's just helping to say, oh, okay, this is in this region at this time and these kings and this is what was going on and this is what this means and... Here's the theology behind it. So if, if you have questions about things as it comes up, like, you know, well, why did they do this or why did they do that? Feel free to ask me because I may or may not know, but I'll be happy to take a guess. So, yeah. Carmel? Carmel? Mount Carmel? That was the mountain that Elijah was on. <laughs> Is it caramel or caramel? Okay, so there's this point. If you, if you go up the coastline of, of Israel, go up north from Tel Aviv. I think it's now Haifa. But there's this point that comes out like a little ridge. North of that, you have, have you ever heard of Armageddon or Medigo? Anyway, there's this big Jezreel Valley that goes through there. And so the, the point that you have right there is what they call Mount Carmel, that's, it, it literally is. You go up on this hill, and it's right up on top, and they, they have the Elijah's cave, you know, even to this day. I don't know if Elijah was actually there or not, but anyway, it's called Elijah's cave. And uh, there's Carmelite monastery there. And uh, the Carmelite monastery, of course, they take their uh, founding members from uh, Carmel. So that's why you hear of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, for example. And you might be thinking... Why is Our Lady in Mount Carmel? You know, well, that's because, not that she lived there, but because it's the reference to Elijah and then the Carmelites that developed from there. So, anyway, I, I turned it into an answer anyway. You were just talking about it sounded like Carmel. <laughs> yeah. And, by the way, I think it is Carmel, not Caramel. Like all the East Coast people, they go, Caramel. They just sound so snooty when they say it, don't they? <laughs> so... Can I turn the volume up? I can. All right. I'm turning up the volume just a little bit. Is that better? Okay. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about the uh, various descriptions of the kings, which I've already mentioned. Basically, almost all of them get a bad rap. And so you'll be read, reading along, and it, it'll just have one king after another, all in the Davidic line. And in the Davidic line, you would expect them to be the good kings, but it just says he did evil just like his father or something like that. In the northern kingdom, it was worse. They were even more critical of the kings that, that follow in the northern kingdom. So if you're reading the book of Kings, uh, you'll notice that 
they're much more cynical about the north for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. And most of the kings of the south um, either were uh, outright bad or they had a mixed bag. Right? But there were exceptions to this. And um, one of those exceptions is going to be Josiah, who I'll talk about in a little bit. So what happened in the north, and I'll show you a map here in a little bit. In the northern kingdom, you have the Assyrian Empire that started to become more and more powerful. And the Assyrians came down and they conquered the north. The north was the richer of the two. Actually, they were pretty prosperous for the times. And uh, the south was considered a little more backwater, and, and they were also a little poorer. And they did have Jerusalem, they had the temple, and they had uh, the Davidic kingdoms and all that sort of thing. But they didn't have a lot of good area for growing crops. Uh, they didn't have a lot of good land for herding and all that sort of thing. You get a whole lot more rain, and you've got the Sea of Galilee, you've got the Jordan River, and you've got uh, the hills, and it just gets more rain in general. So they could plant crops. They had much more means than the south did. But it also meant they were a bigger target. So when the Assyrians, who started to build up a bigger empire, came down and conquered the north, they did what ancient empires did in the day. And they would take the uh, important people in the area and they would relocate them. And then they would go and take other people in their kingdom and move them to the new land. And the idea there is, if you take away people from their land, you're taking away the ability for them to revolt. Because if all the important people are scattered all over the place, they can't regroup and find a national identity and then decide that they want to rebel against the king because they're scattered all over the place. So in a way, it's kind of a wise move, although it's pretty cruel, but it's what the Samaritans, um, that's why we have Samaritans, because the... Assyrians came down, they conquer the north, they take a bunch of the tribes of Israel, scatter them throughout the kingdom of Assyria, which by this time is, includes Babylonia, Sumer, Syria, and then northern Israel and parts of southern Turkey. So they scattered them all through there. And then what they did is they took others and then it planted them in Israel. And because of that, by planting these new people in Israel, in the northern area, they started bringing their own gods in. You know, so for example, if, if I'm from uh, a place down in, uh, um, mess in Babylonia, I'm going to take Marduk. That's my god. And I'm going to do cultic practices to Marduk. And so if they're Canaanites, then they're going to do Baal. And if they're Phoenicians, you know, they're going to do... Um, start, and they've got different gods there. But anyway, this corrupted the, the worship of northern Israel. And then it also started what would become the Samaritans. So do you remember when Jesus was at the well and there was the Samaritan woman? Think about it. The well. What does the well represent? Huh? You don't go to a bar, you, you go to the well, right? So anyway, but that, so this is an underlying theme. So here Jesus is at the well, you know, so an, an ancient reader or the reader around the time of Jesus would say, oh, there, there's going to be a wife or something coming out of this, you know, cause like Jacob and Moses and this sort of thing. Well, 
In the conversation, though, it's all metaphorical. It's allegorical, poetic. And so Jesus is actually talking about a certain kind of marriage, but it's a different type of marriage than earthly man, woman kind of marriage. It's more like, you know, the bride of Christ and this sort of thing. But, you know, so it's symbolic. But in the context of the conversation, he says to her, go get your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And then Jesus says, you have five husbands, right? And so people usually think that that means literally she had five husbands. Maybe she did. But symbolically what it means is there were five Assyrian tribes that were moved into northern Israel, and then they formed the Samaritans. That's why Jesus said salvation comes from the Jews, because the Jews actually contained the pure worship, whereas the Samaritans lost it because they did the synchronistic type of worship. So anyway, we look forward a little too far there, but, but this is where that all started. So the Assyrians came down, they conquered the north, the north falls, 721 B.C., so it's 721 years before Jesus. And it also is, uh, let's see, 586, 680. It's 150 years or so um, that the south continued before it was conquered. So the north fell first. Okay, so there were some miracles, actually, that saved the south for a time. The Assyrians, they didn't just stop in northern uh, Israel and go back home. They came to Jerusalem and they were going to conquer that as well. And they were all camped and they were all getting ready uh, to invade. And then the plague broke out or something. And different translations and variations of this. And I think one of them said they all got hemorrhoids. But they were, you know, they, they got probably something like a plague. Because it, and, and it actually it did show up even in Assyria's records. But Assyria, when they wrote it down, they just said that, uh, I don't know if it was Usher Bunapal, I can't remember the name of the, the, the actual king at the time, but they decided that, well, we're just going to move on. Because remember, nobody in the ancient world ever lost a battle. Like when, when they write histories and stuff, they would always like the Egyptians, they won every battle they ever fought. Same with the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and they have all these records about how wonderful and great warriors they were and all this sort of thing. You know, so that was kind of the culture of the day. So miracles did save the South. They were going to continue for roughly 150 years in that range. And uh, so the Assyrians did not conquer the South. But what the Assyrians did do is that they had such a strong influence that the uh, king of, of, of uh, the South basically bribed Assyria to leave them alone. You know, and so that, that kind of held them off for a little while. And then after that, Assyria became weak again. So remember when I told you the last time that one of the reasons that David and Solomon were able to consolidate and bring everything together and have stability and begin to, you know, bring the country together under a king is because that was a rare moment in history in the Middle East where all the neighboring powers were weak. Egypt was weak, Babylon was weak, Assyria was weak, the Hittites were weak. So it was just the perfect time for David and Solomon to actually have the ability to have an empire. God could do whatever he wanted to do, but, but this enabled it to happen in a way that was almost natural according to the historical timeline. Okay, so there was a reform of Josiah. So Josiah was a, a king in the south, and he decided that he was going to um, reinstall the, the true worship 
and get rid of all the high places. And so I'll read a little section of that. So I'll do that now. Okay, so this is from 2 Kings chapter 23. Uh, Further, Josiah purged the consultation of ghosts and spirits with the household gods, idols, and all the other horrors to be seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem. All right, so Josiah is in the south. But what he's doing here is he's stopping these cultic practices that aren't in line with the law. Okay, so... So they might carry out the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah, the priest, had found in the house of the Lord. Okay, Hilkiah, the priest, they, uh, they went into the temple and they found the book of the law. More than likely, it was the book of Deuteronomy. And so this was read to all the people. Before him, before him they had no king who had turned to the Lord as he did with his whole heart, his whole being, with his whole strength, in accord with the entire law of Moses, nor did any king like him arise after him. So anyway, remember when I said there was an exception? So Josiah was the exception. He was the biggest exception. So you have David and Solomon, and then you have all these other kings that, you know, they're a mixed bag. And then you have Josiah, and his reform actually was looked very favorably in the author of Kings, Deuteronomic history. But the law that he read, and they started in the morning, and they just read the entire law, and everyone's all happy. We just had this actually in... Uh, um, no, 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 that, never mind. That was Nehemiah. It happens all the time. People lose the law and they find it again. But, but anyway, that was, uh, that was what they ended up reading Josiah's reform. And after reading the law, there was the pledge by the people. They were going to follow the king and the people. The people said they would follow it. The king said he would follow it. So he destroyed shrines. He removed cultic objects. He exterminated all priests, destroyed poles, altars, and prostitute houses. Okay, so this might seem weird, but there was a cultic practice when you hear about these prostitutes and cultic practices. You're like, what's that all about? Well, they actually thought that through the action of prostituting and sex that you could unite yourself with the gods and get certain favors. And so they would have these houses of prostitution, basically, that were tied into the worship. And that might sound weird, but think about it in an agricultural-type setting. Because, you know, like all the gods are fertility gods. So the idea of fertility is not only that the woman gets pregnant, but that your crops become fertile. You know, and so you hear these kind of words. So they connected um, that prostitute sex with the crops and, you know, favors of the land. And so it was just something that developed over time. To us, it sounds crazy and it is crazy, but that's what they were doing. When you hear about these temple prostitutes and stuff like that, that were happening, you know, that's kind of the reason behind that. Okay. And don't you find it strange by the way? So here, if you'll notice, they keep talking about these Canaanite um, people that continue to worship Baal and how how the uh, um, Israelites were influenced by that. And, and then time after time, the prophets would try to say, no, you can't be doing this. And then they wouldn't do it. And then it would start up again. And um, you would almost ask, well, wait a minute. According to Joshua, didn't the Israelites just go in and wipe them all out? And then they settled the land and then it was totally Jewish? 
Obviously, you can tell that's not what really happened. And then even after Joshua, they do talk about these additional cities that were there, and they talk about these other people that were there. And, and, uh, and so there was always this, this tension between especially the Canaanites and the Israelites because the Canaanites followed their gods and the Israelites followed God. And uh, when the Canaanites were more influential because they were the ones who knew how to do the crops and stuff, they had the established culture before the Israelites came in. And so the Israelites were tempted by those Canaanite gods. And so time after time, they had to kind of come back and retreat. And, and, and the reform of, of uh, Josiah was one of those. Let's see. Babylonian exile. All right, so here is Assyria. Assyria was an empire that went, it, in its peak, went all the way down into Egypt went up here, and then went down here into Babylon. So it was all this area. And when the tribes of, of the north were exiled, they exiled the north up into these different areas. And then they took the, uh, see like Babylon, and they went, moved them back. They took Gentiles to fill in Israel. So this was in 721 B.C., and, and by the way, you'll hear all kinds of crazy things like, you know, whatever happened to those lost tribes of Israel? Well, they got in boats and went all the way to the New World. And, I mean, people will say those kind of things. But they just get, they would repopulate their own empire, you know, because they don't want to lose all that labor. So it's not like they're going to send them in boats and kick them out. But, but anyway, so this is what happened in 721. That was the first, so this was the first sacking and deportation of the north. Now, what you're going to have later on in this area, you'll notice two dates, 604 and then 586. So by this time, the Assyrians got weak and the Babylonians, so Babylonia here, Assyria is a little farther north. Babylonians conquered the Assyrians and then they took over the empire. In the process of it, they came down and they, they conquered Jerusalem, sacked the city, took all the sacred objects out of the temple and then they went and deported the important people back to Babylon. So they took, the, um, took them back and imported them back into Babylon. So in the book of Daniel, we'll talk about Daniel later, but there was the, um, remember they had like the vessels, and then you had the hand on the wall and all this sort of thing, and, and uh, those vessels supposedly were the ones that they took from the temple. And so it was kind of a sacrilege that was happening there. And... But the time frame in the north was earlier than the south. There were some cultural considerations. All right, so there were city dwellers and there were rural. I can never say rule. Is that right? Rural. That's a hard word to say. Rule? I see, I can't say it. I always say like rural. 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 Anyway, there's some words. You should see me in Spanish when I get some of those. I just give up and move on. Okay, so you have city life and rural life. And uh, city life, of course, was never considered really the ideal. Because when you look back, what was Abraham? Abraham was a shepherd, right? He was a herder. And so there was always this ideal that, oh, you know what? Herding's better than planting. 
It's more fun. And then uh, the other one is rural life is better than city life. And it's, it's kind of subtle, but you'll, you'll kind of notice that. Well, that's good for us down here in Oregon, right? But, but you'll notice a certain bias about it. The other thing is, is that there's always this understanding that you can't go back to Egypt. You know, so that's another one. Once they come out of Egypt, don't go back. And so, like, there, there are those little things every once in a while where people think Egypt's going to save them. Like when Necho was going to, you know, form a coalition and then they were going to beat back the... Uh, Babylonians, it didn't work, you know, and the, the problem was you can't trust Egypt. You can't put your faith in Egypt, never go back to Egypt. So it's kind of a, a bit of a, a thread in there as well. And the idea of the rule and shepherd life goes back to the patriarchs because the patriarchs were herders and they were rule and they were more nomadic. Whereas the city dwellers are the sophisticated ones and they're much more likely to become corrupt. But anyway, that, that's just a subtle thing there. This is something that's different as well. You know how we think of spirit and then like body and soul and that sort of thing in, in our understanding? And where we get that is from Greek philosophy. It, it comes, well, mostly from the influence of Plato when they talk about body and soul and my spirit and my body. And um, Jews didn't think that way. They didn't have the sense of, you know, well, I just need to, you know, get rid of my body so my soul can go free. You know, that was, that would have been something very foreign to them. They see the person as a unified whole. And for that reason, when you talk about dying, they didn't really have the, the, the a great understanding about, well, how is it that our, we can live on if our body dies. You know, there, it was a, a bit of a dilemma in that. Later on, once you start having more of a Greek influence, or Persian even to a certain degree, they started understanding that there's a part of us that lives on even if the body doesn't. But especially in the earliest works, some say they didn't even have an understanding of everlasting life. It, it appears that the way that when you're reading the first parts of the Old Testament, that they don't really talk about everlasting life, you know, life after death even so much. The best that you get is this kind of shadowy existence in Sheol, you know, kind of like when Eli came out of the grave when Saul was um, using the witch of Endor. So, but that unity of the body and soul to this day actually is the Christian understanding. So I know in America and in most of the Western world, we're kind of all Platonists at heart. So we think of, you know, it's like my soul and my body. And, and then we also get dualistic. We say body bad, soul good, you know, and this kind of thing. Um, but we are created beings and we're created body and soul and we're created good. So our bodies as well as our souls are both good. And this is why in the Christian world, we talk about the resurrection of the body. Do you ever feel a little awkward about that? I have a hard time explaining that to people who know nothing about Christianity. Well, you know, we have this resurrection of the body. They're like, what? What are you talking about? Well, it's worse in Paul's day because when Paul was explaining this, people were like, what are you talking about? Get out of here. Resurrection of the body, you know? And so it was something that, that in the ancient world, um, the Jews accepted it, but the other ones didn't. And the Greeks certainly didn't. And we're influenced by Western philosophy. So to this day, most Catholics as well as Christians are overly dualistic, and they don't understand the, uh, the sacredness of the body and the resurrection of the body. And so the, the downfall comes that we think the body doesn't matter. And uh, the other is we 
negate the resurrection of the body as being a good thing that will happen someday. You all know that, right? In the fullness of time, when there's the new heavens and the new earth, we get our resurrected bodies. Sometimes Christians will go, what? (laughs) But, you know, because you hear this kind of like, I can't wait till the second coming comes and Jesus just blows up the world and it's all done away with. And, you know, and then we're just going to be in heaven forever. And, you know, well, there's a new heavens and a new earth, you know, creation's going to be restored and our bodies are going to be, I always wonder what that's going to be like, because it's not the bodies like this. It's the spiritual bodies, the resurrected, transformed bodies. I'm getting ahead of myself. But anyway, so you've got this. First of all, the unification of flesh and spirit. And the, the best they would do is they would have this under, the shadowy thing, and then they would understand the, the breath of God, the ruah or the panomatos, would, would, would be part of the person. And, uh, you know, but that was just the, the spirit and the body was very much united and connected. Sickness and old age. Sometimes we read back into these ancient texts and we just imagine that everybody lived just like we do today. They lived to a ripe old, old age, and um, that just wasn't really the case. There were old people, though. Sometimes people say, oh, there's, the average age is 40 years old, so everyone just died young. No, there were people that lived old. And uh, many people in history, you know, they'd have the records of that. And the people who did tend to get some sort of age behind them were very revered. They were the lucky ones. They must be blessed, right? And so elderly people, they were the celebrities. You know, the young people, they didn't matter so much. So, you know how, like, nowadays we really, like, with little kids and babies and this kind of thing, we, we really almost obsess over them. And uh, they're the most important thing. And, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm saying it wasn't what happened back then. Like, now in a shipwreck, women and children first, you save them. Back then, children and women, throw them overboard, you know. So, so they didn't really have a... Uh, an understanding that children were more important than adults because adults would work and adults could make a living whereas children couldn't. But you would hope that your children would grow up so that they might be able to help support you when you get older. It's just a different, different economy, different worldview. And, uh, and, and that also explains a little bit about that respect for the elders thing that I was talking about. Um, but a lot of children died young. I forget the statistics, but... Like, even in Jesus' time, um, was it like a quarter of all children would die? Uh, I better not even quote it. But it was something that I was thinking, like, wow, like half of all kids would be dead before age seven or something like that. I mean, it was just because think about your own lives. When you were growing up, did you ever have anything that could have killed you? Because, like, an infection, we have antibiotics and stuff like that. They didn't have antibiotics, and, you know, so they, had, they didn't have the advantages we had. So death happened a lot, and there were also, as I mentioned, more wars, that if you were a healthy male, one in 17 would die in battle. So that's quite a bit. You just have to kind of figure that it was a little more wilder time in in some ways. Okay, afterlife. Yeah, I mentioned that. They they didn't specifically have a well-defined understanding of the afterlife. And so the best that they could do is, is just have this idea that, well, God's just. So one way or another, we know that something's going to happen and God's just. But it's almost as if they didn't really um, explain it or define it. Where it's not like other places didn't. Because Egypt had a very well-defined understanding of an afterlife. 
And I think to some degree there was some influence there, but still the, uh, in the Jewish literature it didn't, it didn't define it quite as much. I wonder if I got another one. Work and religious practice. So, people that worked, we, we have a different understanding of this as well. When, when we hear the word slave, the first thing we think of is, you know, bad, oppression, awful. And, you know, we think of the slavery in the 1800s, in uh, late 1700s in the United States. Um, for them, slavery was an institution that has just always existed. It predates written records. And so there were slaves. And slaves were not necessarily the worst lot you could get in life. Because if you were a slave, you had work and you'd be fed. Whereas if you were a day laborer, then it was much more risky. You may or may not get work. If you don't get work, you have no food to bring the family. And, and so life is actually, if you're, if you're a poor peasant day laborer, it's even worse than being a slave. And so there were slaves, but it, it wasn't looked at in the, the same. It was negative, I suppose, but it wasn't as negative as we tend to, to think. There were very few rich people, very, very few. They would say like 1% or something like that would be considered well-off. And they're well-off would be um, someone who has like a house and plenty of food and, and has some gold and some silver and some land and this sort of thing. So very few people actually had real wealth at that time. And it, in our overall history, the average middle-class American is much richer than anyone would have been in the ancient world. You know, so it's just a, uh, it was a harder life. Well, you think about it. They didn't have all the technologies. They didn't have all the means. They didn't have the economic um, advantages that we do. So anyway, that, that's just something to keep in mind. When you kind of wonder, it's like you, you almost think like everyone's middle class when you read the Bible. But the majority would be poor. And the very few that are rich, um, you've got this like merchant class and pretty decently well off. And then you've got the kings, you know. But there's just not really much of a middle class. All right. Family, clan, real love, duty to educate children. Women weren't trash. Anyway, I just <laughs> something that was... Uh, there, there's always this misconception that it was a patriarchal time. And yes, it was. So 4,000 years ago that uh, women were not looked at as equals like they are today. But there was always this ideal that, you know, even if you look in Genesis, you know, that they talk about them being one flesh. And, you know, the woman and the man are created in a sense where they are equal to a, to a large degree. And then it's the fall and the sin that, that causes some of the conflict in that. And it was a patriarchal culture, meaning that the man, you know, he was the more important and he was the boss and all this sort of thing. But it doesn't mean that women didn't have a valuable role and that they weren't considered essential, especially in the, the life of the family. That there was a subdivision of labor and they did different things. But uh, a wife would, would do the essential work that the men couldn't do. The men would do a lot of the hard manual labor and the women would do a lot of labor, but it just would be different. So they would be doing a lot of the crafts and different things like that, whereas um, the clothes and, and uh, they'd be the ones in charge of the household. Actually, a lot of families are still like that, I guess. So. But uh, like the finances and everything like that. And so 
a good marriage between a Jewish couple, that they would have a good relationship. They would actually love each other and they would be partners in the family and the man would respect the opinion of the wife and they would have dialogue back and forth. So, so sometimes I think we think of it like the cavemen, you know, that it wasn't like that. But nevertheless, there was uh, discrimination and uh, um, what, do, what do you call that with machoism? It's not machoism, but misogynistic or what is it? Huh? Yeah, it's kind of chauvinistic. There's a word for it, but I can't, can't think it. And women actually would educate the kids until they were of age. And then after that, then the husbands would do it. So like when Jesus was 12 and he went to the temple. So when he was a little kid, Mary would have been the one educating him. And then later on, once they get to that age, then it's the, uh, the male that, that takes over the education starts teaching them the law and this sort of thing. Israelites, by the way, um, they were much more literate than, than other people were in a lot of the ancient world. I'm thinking more now around the time of Jesus more than the ancient, ancient ones, but um, that's because what was important to them, the law. And they had to study the law. And to study the law, you'd have to be able to read the law. So they would instruct the kids on how to know, read, and, and memorize the law. And... You know, other cultures that didn't have that um, importance, they didn't necessarily learn to read and write. So the Israelites were actually fairly literate later on. Okay, sex is caught up as well in that holiness code. So if you want to go back and read Leviticus, and uh, you can get back in there. But the idea there is it has to go, it, it goes back to that original creation. And kind of like the question I was asked earlier about, um, well, what about polygamy and all this stuff. Well, the ideal was one man and one woman. And there was the understanding that it was natural and complementary. And men and women, when they would come together, that the ideal was that that would be for life. Although there was divorce in the Old Testament times, just as well as the New Testament times, just as well in our own day. Um, But it's the the idea is, and, and this is something that we don't always understand either, but but uh, it's the ideal that's supposed to be strived toward, even though it's not actually fulfilled. So, but anyway, that is the ideal. Also, I talked about some of this already. There's some of the, like when we get into the prophets, you'll see it a lot more. But some of the, uh, the best descriptions of just living. Now, keep in mind, this is like, thousand years, 800 years, 600 years before the time of Jesus, when you've got these different prophets talking about how people can't be cheating and you richer people can't oppress the poorer people and we have to have true weights and, and you, you have to be able, to, when you're bringing sacrifice, you have to bring good sacrifice, don't cheat God. And, you know, so they've got the, the era of the prophets you've got a really strong ethical code that more and more is getting built into the system. At first you had the law of Moses, Ten Commandments, and then the holiness law and the moral code and the purification rituals and all that. But what the prophets do is they start expanding that and they start applying a lot of the moral characteristics. And the idea and the ideal is that the king, if he's a good king, he serves the people. He especially looks out for the widows and the oppressed and the orphans. And he's more concerned with the people who are not able to have means. And this all predates Jesus even, you know, for hundreds of years. 
Jesus, of course, takes that to a whole new level. But it, he didn't just, it didn't come out of nowhere. It was something that had long precedence going back into these times. So the law is, is to serve the people. And there was an understanding of revenge, which Jesus, of course, changed. But um, if you kill me, I'm killing you and your family. You know, so like you may have heard the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth thing. And you think, you know, by the revenge thing, it's just like never ends, right? You kill me, I kill you. And well, I guess that's not going to work, but I kill someone else. But, but the, that's actually a law that limits an escalation of revenge. Because if it's an eye for an eye, then it's not going to be my eye and then both your eyes. You know, so it kind of stops it. And, and so that was considered something that was actually a limiting factor. Um, I talked about elders already. The city gates, that was where uh, the people used to meet. And they used, it was kind of like if the guys want to go out and talk, they just hang out by the city gates. There, there's the... Uh, um, I'm trying to think, was that in Proverbs? Where they're talking about the good wife and the husband goes out and brags about her at the city gate. Yeah, I kind of love that. You know, yeah, let me tell you about my wife. You know, so, but anyway, the city gates, it's also where the king used to pronounce judgment. They'd have a seat sometimes, they'd go there and he'd sit down and he'd pronounce judgments when people would come with certain demands, lawsuits and things like that. And one of the places we went in Israel, they had some... uh, land that they were excavating and they had it was in the northern kingdom but they actually had the the actual uh throne the chair that he would pronounce judgment on so it was kind of kind of an interesting thing all right i already talked about slavery so we'll move on from there all right so these are different uh worship sorry I didn't mean to do these all one by one we go down here one two kings okay so you've got sacrifices many of these are explained in the Pentateuch and the first five books of the Bible, but it became part of what they did. They'd have holocausts, and those were uh, the word holocaust. We think it means like when someone is killed, but what it really is is a burnt offering, and so it's a sacrificial offering, and it's uh, um, like we have a bad context because of the Jewish holocaust after or during World War II. But in its original sense, a holocaust is just a burnt offering, an offering to God. Then you have grain offerings, and it would be like, not only like wheat, barley, rye, and they'd had, whenever a harvest would come in, they would just offer a sacrifice like of praise. Then they would have peace offerings. Sometimes they'd bring someone an animal. Um, Sin, now sin is different because you'd have, you'd have sin that was more of a, um, I broke the moral, not the moral code, but the uh, ritual code. And sometimes it'd be an accident. And so when you break the law, which is an accident, and it has to do with the purity law or something like that, then you can offer a sacrifice and that makes up for it. So, but that's different from like a sin that would be considered like a moral sin, like adultery or uh, murder or something like that. 
you know, so the breaking the law in those other ones, like I was supposed to wash my hands and I forgot, then they would offer sacrifices for those things. They have different feast days. Passover, that was the birth of the lambs. Then you'd have Pentecost, that's the wheat or the first fruits. So the first fruits that come in, you'd have the uh, booths and uh, that was the fruit, but also it, it, it was where they would have tents, and that would symbolize when they were in the desert for those 40 years. So they, to this day, I think they still do that. They go out into the desert or the wilderness in their tents. So that symbolizes the 40 years that they were in the wilderness. Pentecost, by the way, that's Sinai, where Moses gets the Ten Commandments. Day of Atonement, you've heard of Yom Kippur, like Kippur snacks. Maybe you haven't heard of Kippur snacks. <laughs> All right, then... New moon. Well, anyway, they don't even know much about that one. It was probably some sort of harvest festival. Every seven days on the Sabbath. Sabbath was a holy time. And so that was um, another one of those feast days. Post-exile, so that's after. There was the, um, what they call Purim, which that's the deliverance from Persia. And they use that story of Queen Esther, which we'll have a little bit of that later on. And Hanukkah, that was during the Greek period. So you know the, uh, like the lights and temple of lights. And it was the rededication of the temple. So that's what that one is. After Judas Maccabeus, the uh, Greeks came in and they desecrated the temple. And so they repurified it and then they had a celebration. And so Hanukkah celebrates that. So there were two main priesthoods. There's Aaron and how it, how it developed after the temple was that Aaron was the official sacrifices of the temple and he was specially consecrated and there was also a high priest. The Levites were the helpers and they did the family offerings. And as I mentioned, before the temple, the Levites did a little more. After the temple, they would help out with the temple worship. Sometimes kings actually offered sacrifice. I gave one example with Saul where he offered sacrifice and it was bad. But then some kings offer sacrifice and it's not looked at as necessarily bad. David actually offered sacrifice at one point. Okay. So, First and Second Chronicles. I don't want to spend too much time on Chronicles because what it basically does is it rehashes to a certain degree the uh, books of one and two kings. But it does it in a way that is pro-monarchy because it came, it came much later. So 1 and 2 Chronicles, when it's explaining history, it's pro-monarchy, whereas first 1 and 2 Kings tends to be a little more anti-monarchy. But although it's pro-monarchy with first and second Chronicles, it's got a bit of a caveat. And the caveat is... No one really measures up to David. You know, so it does kind of follow that certain line. That the golden period's David, and if, oh, if everyone would just be a king like David, everything would be great again. And it, it, it builds on the history, but it was written, as I mentioned, um, after the, they came back and per, from the Persian conquest of Babylon, and the, the Jews came back. So that's when this was written. So it's a post-exile work of history. David is good. And then with the temple worship, there's a certain understanding too that 
the kings were loose, but meaning they weren't doing it right. And so now they needed to tighten up what they could and couldn't do. So there's that emphasis of, of ritual purification and purity of worship. And then you have classification of the priests and the Levites, and it clarifies some of the ambiguity. Ambiguity? Ambiguity. <laughs> That's when I talk too fast. Ambiguity between the priests and the Levites. So it's giving a clearer definition of that. And then also it defines that only the family of Aaron can be priests. You know, so there has to be a direct lineage of Aaron for, for priesthood. So that tightened it down as well. So we don't have this kind of, well, sometimes you have, you know, the kings can offer sacrifice and maybe certain, you know, family members in certain situations. So that codified it. And it was emphasizing and lifting up Israel, Jerusalem, the temple, the priesthood, Levites. And then it leaves this understanding that the north apostatized, meaning the south still retained, you know, but the north apostatized, reunited. That's possible. It's possible the north and south could come back together again. And it's always kind of part of the, the description. But only by a new David. So in First and Second Chronicles, it talks about this possible unification that may happen, but it can only happen under King David. So it's not like there's going to be a third set of, of kings or something that are going to make that happen. And, and then the people in the present need to live by the spirit of David, always looking to reform. Okay, so that, that gets built in. So the first eight chapters, we've got genealogies. If you really want to get someone, so like when you're a, a lector or something like that, and someone says, what, what readings do we have today? And you say, oh, uh, it's First Chronicles chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And then it's just going to be nothing but names. You know, it's like, you know, so I'll do that every once in a while on retreat. You know, so here, here, here's the reading. So we're going to do this, you know, first Chronicles chapter two, you know, and, and then I'll just walk away and watch them. Just, ah. So but a whole lot of names, eight chapters of names. So I read them. Did you guys read them at some point? I'm like, I'm going to do it anyway. I don't remember what I read, but I read it. So now I skip it, <laughs> but it, not being too light about it. Everything's there for a reason, and genealogies are important because it shows that connection between the old and the new, and, and it gives that connection with the chosen people who, in the Davidic monarchy, for example, and, and how that works its way down to the present. So, okay, what they omit, which is interesting, there's no Bathsheba, no sin, no family disputes, and you don't have any hostility from Paul, or I mean from Saul. So that's kind of interesting, isn't it? And you do have Nathan as prophet. You've got religious acts. You've got the ark, the organization of worship. You've got the prepping for the building of the temple and David's responsibility for the design. So, so they're, they're kind of putting David more in the forefront. Then you've got uh, Judah and the Davidic dynasty. And they would always say whether they were, they were faithful or not, according to David. And then you have Hezekiah and Josiah. And so those were the two that were the most positively favored, Josiah especially. And then the other ones, infidelity, reform, repeat. You know, it would just be time after time again. Actually, that pattern shows up all the time. So you've got Israel where God says, 
I'm going to bless you and everything's wonderful and they're blessed. And then they revert, they sin, they become stubborn, they cry out, God saves them, God blesses them, and it starts over. So it's just this repeating cycle. But isn't that life? Where am I at with that? Okay. So one thing to keep in mind with First and Second Chronicles is it is history, kind of, but it's also a lot of theology. And because of that, you have to understand that the principal reason for the book isn't necessarily to show a chronological history, even though it's called Chronicles. It's more to show a theological history that shows the importance of David and how God was acting in Israel as the time was going down through the ages. God is a God of history. It also reminds people that the past, the present, and the future, there's a certain merging that happens there. Um, there was something that the, the Jews did, which is very unique in time, is a lot of the ancient world thought time was cyclical, and, and it would just kind of repeat itself, the Greeks especially, but even the Babylonians, they used to have that understanding, where the Jews had an idea of time being linear, and, and they emphasized that. But they also had seasons, so maybe time corkscrews, but, but the idea there is that there's a certain progression that happens, whereas uh, most of the ancient world didn't have that same understanding. And there's this reminder that people are supposed to live in a way that is faithful to the law and faithful to the worship and proper worship. You know, so that's kind of the, the, the gist there of First and Second Chronicles. So that's a whole lot of stuff. But anyway, that's the part of that. All right. Ezra and Nehemiah. So... Let's see, what do I have here? Okay, so this goes back to the post-Persian period. So remember, the uh, Babylonians came in and they sacked Jerusalem, deported them. And the Persians, when they conquered Babylon, they had a different policy. The Persians actually were much more accommodating when it came to uh, other areas being able to worship their gods and practice their faith. So when they would conquer a city, for example, they wouldn't take all the gods and you know the, the idols and stuff out of the city, um, but they would leave it because they, would, they figured, well, you capture more with, with honey than vinegar, right? So what, what is that saying? You capture more with honey than... Catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Okay, I guess it's close. And, and so they would actually enable people to go back to their lands to worship their gods and to keep their gods and keep their temples. And they figured they were building goodwill. Whereas the Assyrians, the Assyrians were hated because they would come through and their idea was we're a little fewer in number. So when we conquer, we need to destroy. We need to wipe out. And we need to do, like, incredible atrocities so people are so scared of us that they won't resist us. And so they would flail people. They would skin them alive. They'd cut off their heads. They'd stack them on poles. Um, they, they have actually these huge stone uh, um, reliefs showing a Sennacherib who's sitting there watching as people are being skinned alive. And while other people are coming and giving homage and... You know, it was just extremely brutal. But that was their method because they thought that, like ISIS, you know, they thought that if, 
if we are just overly brutal, then people will just not resist us. And we're few in numbers, so we don't have the numbers to overpower. So we have to do it through acts of terrorism. The Persians actually were a much more kinder pers- uh, empire. And Cyrus the Great, when the way that he used to do it was that when he would conquer, he would conquer. But he was never one to be looking for atrocities. And he would not do the, the same things that the uh, Assyrians were doing. So people were much more favorable. They, they had a much more tame system. It doesn't mean they didn't punish people. They certainly did. But in the Persians, for example, are the ones who thought up crucifixion. You know, so it's not like they never punished anyone, but they were not nearly to the degree that the Assyrians were. So Cyrus decides that the Jews can go back to their homeland. And so there are two parts to this. There's Nehemiah who goes back and he's going to rebuild the walls. And then you have Ezra who's the priest. And so Ezra is going to reinstitute the the, uh, proper worship back in the Holy Land. When they got back there, though, the place was destroyed. It was run down. Uh, None of the crops were were being handled correctly. There was no really good economy. Um, There was no merchant. I mean, it was just the place was destroyed. And it was really run down. For that matter, actually, a lot of people who were in Babylon decided they didn't want to come back. And they were trying to encourage them to come back in spite of the poverty and the, the situation that they were coming into. So, 445 B.C., Nehemiah is appointed the governor. And he's the governor up until 417, for most of that time. Ezra was sent to restore the Israelite faith according to the law and to do with the Israelites also they needed to reinstitute the people. And this was kind of a hard thing and a controversial policy because Ezra thought that if you're Jewish, you need to marry a Jewish wife. Because if you don't, we're going to run the same problem that happened in the Northern Kingdom where they all became Samaritans. And so he made this, this rule or law that said that if you marry, you have to marry an Israelite. And not only that, If you're currently married to someone who's not Israelite, you need to divorce that one and marry an Israelite. So you can see this was a bit controversial, but it was kind of like the necessity of the times more than anything. Incidentally, the book of Ruth is a counter-argument to this. Because where's Ruth from? She's a Moabite, right? And then she's with Naomi, who's Israelite. And so Naomi moves back from, you know, back into uh, Israel and, and what does Ruth do? She moves back with her. And then eventually she works her way into the family and then she marries and then she becomes a descendant of David. You know, so basically it was showing that, well, wait a minute. If you can have these heroines in, in the past that weren't Israelites but became ancestors of David, it's like, why are you making us only marry Israelites? You know, so obviously there was some conflict going on since we have these separate um, books with, with different uh, theological emphasis. Um, but still, you can see that if you put all, you know, what is right aside maybe, you can see that when you're a small number of people, you're moving back into the land. If you start marrying everybody else, then it's going to diffuse the population and, and you will lose it. So, so Ezra was, I think, in, to some degree, just trying to be practical. So all marriages to foreigners were invalidated. He called an assembly... So all the people came together and they all repented of their sin and they all agreed to give up their foreign wives and keep the Sabbath. All right. So I don't think they were happy about it necessarily, but anyway, this is where the unity of faith was being emphasized and the practice 
of the faith was being emphasized and the unity of the people were being emphasized. Because I think they just figured that, you know, if we don't emphasize the unity of practice, faith, and people, then we will cease to be uh, a race. You know, so the chosen people would have disappeared. Ezra read the book of the law while the people promised to obey. Uh, That's the one we had this last week. So nine in the morning to three in the afternoon. I don't know exactly what the times were, but book of Deuteronomy read the whole thing and the people were crying and they were so happy. And, and, uh, and at the end they all said, yes, we will do it. And afterwards they were saying the Ezra was saying, now go home and feast and have a good time and be joyful because it's a joyful time. And, uh, anyway, so when I, when I go read for six hours, you guys should all be happy, smiley and, and, uh, like, oh boy. So, but if you think about it though, I mean, what if you hadn't heard the Bible and all of a sudden you, you go through this big long thing where you, you want to read, you want to get back into your faith again. And now the first time in years you're hearing the, the Bible being read to you. I mean, it would be an amazing thing. It really would. A lot of things we take for granted because they're so accessible, but things were not so accessible back then. All right. And then you, let's see where we're at here with, oh, Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, he was the one that built the wall of Jerusalem. One one of the things you had to do in an ancient city is you would need protection. If you didn't have protection, then you would have raiders that would come in and all hours of the day and night and and take things away. So they would build walls. They'd have gates. So people would have to come in and out through these gates. And that was how you regulated commerce, taxes, and you would regulate the ability for, uh, for any crime or anything like that to take place. Shut the walls at night. And then when you're open for business again, you open them back up. But it gives people protection. Well, the walls were destroyed, 587, by the Babylonians, and they were never rebuilt. And so Ezra, I mean, Nehemiah decides he's going to rebuild these walls. And so he starts rebuilding the walls, and all around him, people are mocking him. But he continues, and he perseveres, and eventually the walls get rebuilt. You know, so that's just a nice story of perseverance as well. Yeah, so the book of Nehemiah, so we've gone from Ezra to Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is a continuation, in a sense, of Chronicles. So after the exile, you've got them moving back, and now it's continuing that history. So you've got the Edict of Cyrus, 538 B.C., the return and the rebuilding of the temple, and that's Ezra 1 through 6. You've got the hostility from the Samaritans. They're trying to stop, um, but it's resumed under... Okay, Darius or Darius, however you want to read that. The first, he was the next Persian emperor after Cyrus. And, well, think about it. The Samaritans, they're living there. All of a sudden, all these Jews come back. Well, that's a threat to their livelihood and to their new homeland. And so, naturally, they're going to oppose that. So, they went back to the king of Persia and tried to do all these stoppages when it comes to the wall and all this sort of thing. But, in the end, it didn't happen. All right, so you got a new name, Artaxerxes. Let's see, do I have that up there? Yeah, there you are. He, he showed up in the uh, readings this week, too. Because uh, was, who was the... Oh, I forget who it was. Anyway, I told her ahead of time. I said, Artaxerxes is the name. So she gets up there. Ar, ar, ar. <laughs> but... Oh, did she? Yeah. The, uh, uh, the Persian names aren't so bad. It's the Assyrian ones that are the hardest. Ashurbanipal. 
You know, and it's like, and then some of these are like really, really long names. Okay, so the temple gets finished in 515, but it's simple. And you know what? It's simple, but it describes it as, you know what? This is a humble temple, but it's godly. So I kind of like the way that it's described. It's like, you know, it's not as flashy as Solomon or anything like that, but you know what? God's favorable and he, he, he ple- he's pleased. So for the next 50 years, they're restoring the walls. And finally, they have authorization to impose Mosaic law and then to get those new returners. And so, because it is a bit of a threat in a sense, if you're a Persian king and you're seeing the, the Jews all of a sudden say, we want to have different law. And you say, well, no, you got to do Persian law. And the Jews say, but we need to do our Mosaic law. So that's quite an accommodation for the Persian emperor to allow Mosaic law. But this is the same time that they don't allow the, uh, uh, the, someone from the line of David to be the mayor of the city. You know? So that's the end of the, of the Davidic line. So during this same time. All right. I've reread that. Because some of this overlaps. So you have the Feast of Tabernacles happens. And uh, booths or shelters. And it's celebrated. And then all promise to follow the law. So again, they had the law read by Ezra. Everyone promises to follow the law. Then they dedicate the walls. That's Nehemiah chapters 11 through 13. And, uh, and then he returns. And anyway, that's kind of it. You have some, uh, let's see, dedication of the walls. Yeah, by the way, incidentally, the first chapter of Ezra really does complement some of the, what they call some of the minor prophets, meaning the smaller books that are prophets, prophetical books. So you've got uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all written around the same time or in the same era. And incidentally, they did find an Aramaic Ezra. So the book of Ezra they found in Aramaic chapter 4, 6 through 618, and then his original work was reworked and written in the third person. So there's, there's been a little bit of editing to that book. Nothing that really changes the content, but the, there's some language changing. All right, so I'm going to do one more section, and then I'll open it up for questions. But I just want to talk about some of these different, um, the different collections and books or scrolls that you may know about or may have heard about, and just explain what they are. All right, so the first one is the uh, Septuagint. And the Septuagint translation was sometime around 250 B.C. And it was during the time of the Ptolemies in Alexandria. So just to give a little background, you all have heard of Alexander the Great? All right, early 300s. And then after he died, then he had these different generals that inherited his kingdom And in the south, around Egypt, that uh, particular line of generals that became kings, or emperors, so to speak, those were the Ptolemies. And it ended with Cleopatra. So she was in that line. So um, Cleopatra actually was related to Alexander the Great. So, but anyway, so, but 250 B.C., Ptolemy II 
in Alexandria. Alexandria was building their huge library, which became the largest library in the known world at the time. And they had all these volumes and volumes. And so, so they commissioned the rabbis to put together the, at that time, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and to put it together in a translation. And they got the rabbis to do this. So the legend was that there were 70 rabbis that got together and did it. And they all did it independently. And then when they looked at their, um, they looked at their works, they all matched. So that was the legend. You know, so basically they were saying, this translation has divine authority. And it was in Greek. It wasn't in Hebrew or Aramaic. Um, and that's why it's 70. Septuagint means 70, LXX. So that's where they're from the 70 rabbis that did the translation. Well, this became, in the Greek-speaking world, kind of the biblical norm that people used. And by the New Testament times, it was the work that was used most often in the early church. Uh, for example, in the New Testament... There were 360 quotations of the Old Testament, and of those 360 quotations, 300 of them were from the Septuagint. And I think I mentioned that last time, that the books of the Septuagint include things that the, some of the Hebrew canon didn't. And the, like, for example, Tobit's, um, Tobit, Maccabees, First and Second Maccabees, and Sirach, and those. Um, anything that wasn't Hebrew, the... Uh, the Hebrew canon decided they didn't want, but the church was using what the everyday Jew was using at the time of Jesus, which was the Septuagint. So, so anyway, so that was an important book, and it continues to be an important book. Even to this day, when people do translations, they will often take the Hebrew, and then they will check out the Septuagint to see how they, how they jive. So one example is, um, Jonah was swallowed by a what? Huh? A whale? Okay, so the Septuagint says whale, and then Hebrew says fish. Yeah, anyway, it's not a huge difference, right? You know, so you can say, okay, fish, whale, and, and anyway, whatever, but, the, you know, different translations. So here's another one. When, when Isaiah is talking um, to Hezekiah, and he says, ask for anything that you want. You want a sign? Anything you want, I'll give you a sign. And Hezekiah says, I'm not going to tempt the Lord by asking for a sign. He gets all snooty, you know, like that, that certain kind of false righteousness where I'm going to get out of this by claiming to be more religious. But Isaiah says, here's your sign. You will, a virgin will give birth, right? We know this one, right? But the Hebrew says, a young maiden. The Septuagint says, a virgin. And so Matthew uses that virgin who gave birth to Jesus. You know, so, so basically the early church was using the, the Greek translation of that. Um, can you be a young maiden and still be a virgin? Well, yeah, but, but anyway, it just kind of shows different emphasis and it shows how they, they would take translations. And sometimes actually the, uh, the Septuagint would have uh, sections that were translated in a way that was slightly different than the Hebrew. But Hebrew, you've got classical Hebrew, and then you have the more, uh, the, it would change. After the Persian period, it changed. And so at that point, they would sometimes use the, the classical or the, the newer Hebrew, and they would have differences of opinion because languages change.
But once they had the Septuagint, since it was set in Greek, that was something that was the most commonly used book. Especially, Greek was in the uh, time of Jesus going back to the conquest of Alexander the Great. Greek was the, the language that was used. Um, Aramaic was also used. That was when the Babylonian, basically Aramaic was something that was used by the Babylonian Empire. Okay, so there are some other books as well. You may have heard the word deuterocanonical, deuterocanonical books. That'd be right there. And deuterocanonical, literally what that means, it's Greek for the second canon. And so those would be the books that are in the Septuagint but aren't in the Hebrew um, Old Testament. All right, so remember the, the, the Jewish Old Testament only being in Hebrew and, and rejecting those Septuagint books that were in there was something that came about after the time of Jesus and after the church had already been established. You know, but still, they didn't accept those. But the Deuterocanonicals would be like 1 and 2 Maccabees, and that was written about 170 B.C., and it tells the story of the Jewish rebellion from the... Uh, Seleucid kings, which we'll get to, but those are other Greek kings from the north. And then you've got Baruch. It's a very short book, traditionally attributed, attributed to the secretary of Jeremiah. They don't know exactly when it was written, but more than likely it was, it was a much more recent book than that, than, you know, than the actual secretary of Jeremiah. Uh, there's also Sirach, which is all, also called Ecclesiasticus. You may have, like in the old uh, Catholic Bibles, it was Ecclesiasticus because it was following the Septuagint Greek Ecclesiasticus. But since the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found Hebrew originals. And so they looked at both of those manuscripts and, you know, they found that, you know, Sirach is the uh, Hebrew name for that. You also have the Book of Wisdom, which is the uh, Wisdom of Solomon. And that is something that we use, especially as a prefiguration of Jesus' passion, as well as just St. Paul uses the Book of Wisdom in the very beginning of Romans when he's talking about how the Gentiles um, are just following their hedonistic ways and, you know, and they know better. He's, he's quoting back to the Book of Wisdom in that. There's the story of Tobit. That's a, a bit of an epic kind of story where there's this... Uh, Tobias, the elder, and then Sarah, and how he goes and gets a wife and then brings her back. Interesting with this, though, is it it talks about a time when, remember when the northern kingdom was exiled into the northern parts of Assyria? So there's some sort of traveling. He's going back to the median areas, Ekbatana or something like that. Anyway, don't worry about it. But but there are some interesting historical parallels in there, even though that's a pretty recent book as well. Yeah. Now, that was when, when uh, what did you say? Oh, no, that was Jacob. Yeah, Rachel and Leah. Yeah. That was another thousand years back. But it's funny, though, because we, we don't often think about how many, how many years went by. Um, I was listening to, uh, there was an Assyrian king who took um, Ashurbanipal. He, he collected all these works because he wanted to, to have a cultural center in Assyria when he was the king there. And so he went and got all these old Sumerian, and he learned how to, to read Sumerian. 
and he brought them all to his, uh, um, to his um, castle or whatever, mansion, whatever it is. And, uh, but anyway, it was actually dating back to about 3000 BC. So that would be um, like 2000 year, 2200 years later. So think about that. That'd be like us looking back past the Roman Empire and stuff like that. It's kind of weird. So time, you know, is we've covered a lot of years. All right, so there's also Judith. That's where uh, she cuts off the head of Holofernes. Fun little story. Then you've got Susanna and then uh, those last three fragments of the, the book of Daniel and then Esther. So those particular books, let's see, one. Yeah, like seven additional books in there. Okay, sometimes you'll hear the word apocrypha. And for Protestants, they'll often say it includes the apocrypha, and what they really mean is deuterocanonical. You know, but for them, apocrypha means it's out of the canon, outside of the canon. And so for us, we accept the deuterocanonicals as canonical. So the apocrypha would be additional books that we don't accept. And some examples of that, they have like one and two Esdras, and they have the, um, oh, geez, now I'm kind of pseudepigrapha. That's a different one. Yeah, things falsely ascribed between, well, the Apocrypha, there were a bunch of different works that were floating around, and uh, a lot of the, I'm just kind of losing it right now, but the particular books that I'm thinking of, I can't remember, but there were some books that were written that weren't accepted as the canon, but still they were floating around and give us some historical background to a lot of the Old Testament books that we do have, especially in apocalyptic literature. And 1-2 Ezra is one that uh, you can read that and you'll see some connections with with some. And actually even some of the... uh, the New Testament book of, let's see, which one was that? Jude. Yeah, the New Testament book of Jude has some references to Old Testament apocrypha works. Apocryphal works. You know, just kind of in passing, but it's, it just means that those books were still known at the time of Jesus. Okay, pseudo, pseudepigrapha. And those are additional works that were between 200 B.C. and 200 A.D. They're not found in the Bible. They tend to be apocalyptic and messianic, in trouble or turmoil, and the faithful must hold to the faith. So because it's, we'll talk a little more about the, uh, that. but here's some examples. Book of Jubilees, Martyrdom of Isaiah, and that sort of thing. Um, by the way, pseudo means false. It's Greek for false. And this is, uh, well, j- there was a guy from Boston when we were in seminary, Pat. And uh, Pat was kind of a, a character. But one time, Brother Anscar was really uptight, philosophy professor. And there was a pseudo-Dionysius philosopher, and we were reading this. And so finally, Pat raises his hand. He goes, Brother Man, who's this Suedo guy? Who's this Suedo? You know, and Brother Anscar's like, Suedo? Pseudo. So anyway. All right. Dead Sea Scrolls. So these Dead Sea Scrolls were, um, they have very ancient biblical fragments. The oldest biblical fragments we have come from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they come from 150 B.C. to 70 A.D. So in that era, they tell us a lot 
about not only good translations of the Bible, which is interesting because after they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, our most modern translations matched up with them actually very well. So it shows that 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 preserving of the script was something that was maintained throughout, you know, 2,000 years. But there were some manuscripts that showed some more accurate ways to understand things. And so they, they used the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they found Hebrew equivalents to what we only had in Greek. So, so they were very useful, and they still are for scholarship. They also describe the early life of areas in what they call Qumran. There were these caves by the Dead Sea, and then they would find these scrolls in there. And with these scrolls, they would describe communal life of the Essenes as well as others, other Jews that were, you know, living and preserving these works. And the theory was, is when the Romans came down and they were sacking Jerusalem and as well as other Jewish areas, they hid these scrolls in a cave and they were later going to go back and get them. And unfortunately, they never got a chance to go back and get them. And unfortunately for them, fortunately for us, um, we actually found them. And it was a uh, Palestinian shepherd boy that just kind of wandered into it, found it, found these things, and then went into the market and sold it to some guy. And the guy said, where'd you get this? And, and so he ended up showing him, and then they, they found all these different scrolls in these jars. And uh, to this day, you can go down to those caves, and you can see where they were. They are just right there off the Dead Sea. Well, the oldest one is 150 B.C., and the newest one is around 70 A.D., well, think about it. The, the destruction of Jerusalem was 70 A.D., so that would have been the same time that they stuffed all those scrolls in there. And they had other things other than biblical things. They would have inventories of different items. And they had this one scroll that talks about this, this like huge deposits of gold and all this, and who knows where that ever was. So it's like some of the treasure hunters are saying, we can still find this thing, but anyway, I, it almost sounds as if it's, either lost to history or it never existed in the first place. It may have been something to trick the Romans if they did find it into going on a wild goose chase to find something that never really existed. Anyway, that's more trivia, but... All right, so I guess we're good. It's 9 o'clock, so um, we'll have our little closing prayer, and we'll start out next class with any questions you might have. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So, Father, we ask you to be with us tonight. Help us to be able to absorb what you want us to absorb and to understand what you want us to understand. And uh, help us to be able to, most, most of all, to love you and love your word, to be able to pour ourselves into knowing you through your word. And as we begin to unlock the beauty and the wonder of the Old Testament, help us to be able to apply that in our own faith and in our own life. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.